Good day, everyone. This is Dr. I, and I'm with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Joe, and we are looking out the window today. Today is Saturday, and it's a little foggy outside, Dr. Joe. What do you think that means? Well, it's a little foggy weather-wise, and it's also a little foggy when we reflect on this show intellectually and emotionally and educationally. What's foggy in my mind is when I look around the studio today at our guests and our and our engineer, we're wearing masks again. Oh, no, that's right. It's like a beard to me. <laughs> if I don't have my beard when I go to the grocery store or outdoors, I have to go back and put it on. And uh, it's getting, uh, it's becoming a battle with politicians, the president, states against states, people against people. It's an ugly battle out there over COVID. And I wonder if the bottom line is money. Well, I've heard people say that there's necessary drama and unnecessary drama. And so 18 months into the global pandemic, much of what we're going through now is unnecessary drama because as we've talked about over and over again on this show, and as hopefully everyone has heard, if you've been listening with your ears and your mind, there is a vaccine. And the vaccine, if taken on a widespread level, can help curb the virus months ago at possibly could have come close to stopping it in its tracks. And I'm using lay terms, but we've had experts on this show who have talked to us about the impact that the vaccine could have had in helping to stem this latest outbreak of the Delta variant of the virus. So we don't want to spend this whole show on that, although the topic that we'll be discussing is somewhat related to that. But just to recap what you've heard on this show and what you've heard since then, there is still a deadly global pandemic. It is real. In the United States, more than 500,000 people did not pretend to lay in a hospital bed on a ventilator and die. Some of them perhaps did have underlying causes, but healthcare officials, including those of color, and I say that because historically there have been reasons that those of us of color have had um, good reason to doubt medical science, but now we have folks who look like us, who are very skilled, who say, we know why it is people are dying, and even if you have an underlying cause, we can distinguish that from something that would not have happened but for COVID. And there's one other point that I feel compelled to make this morning, and that is to the people that take it as the nation or the government taking away your decision-making. They've already done that with smallpox and and pneumonia and other diseases that came before us, that you have to go and take the vaccine if you want to live. And in this case, it's not just about you. It's about your neighbor. It's about your family. There was a man on CNN yesterday that made me cry. He had so many tubes going through his body begging his family and everybody that was watching the TV to go get the vaccine. So don't get it twisted. This is about life and death and it's about your life and your death and mine too. And as you suggested in your first comment, the roots of this do go deeper. So if we truly are the United States of America, then this is a a wonderful case study in how united we are. Because for those people who are proclaiming their individual rights, I can't think of any better time that we've had in modern history to pull together than when we have a pandemic that's contagious. That word contagious is important when you're talking about It's your body and your choice. It also impacts me and everyone who has made a choice either to get vaccinated or not get vaccinated. And for me, what's even more tragic is people who have gotten vaccinated, but they're immunocompromised in some way. And so the vaccine doesn't work as effectively on them. So they're literally depending on the rest of us to do our part to bring this to an end. So again, we don't want to dwell on this just real quickly, though, for those of you who are still clinging to some some misinformation 
information as you make your personal decision. First, if, if there was an attempt by the government to put something on you to track you, it's probably more in your mobile device than in the vaccine. So you might want to leave your cell phone at home. If you believe that God will protect you, and I believe that every moment of my life, mm-hmm. I think he's protected us in the form of a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And smart physicians and researchers. So so anyway, let's let's transition to a topic that is relevant. Um, one of my longtime friends um, is on the phone. And she happens to be the expert in homeschooling and education. And um, she uh, has started other schools and been been a advisor to to other homeschool um, founders. She's right here in Columbus, and her name is Paula Pin Nabrit. And the reason this is so relevant today, as you'll soon learn, Paula Penn Neighbor was homeschooling back when there were non-pandemic reasons to do so. But as we head back to school as a country and as K-12 schools and also colleges and universities begin to make statements about what they will and will not find acceptable as it relates to precautions for the virus, parents have to make those decisions too. And certainly homeschooling is an option. It's an option that that, that parents were thrust into on an emergency basis mm-hmm. last year. And so we're delighted to have Paula. And also in this show, we'll hear from the other side of the table, a student who was homeschooled and has his thoughts about the pros and cons of how that's impacted him now as he's out in the adult work world. Yes. Okay. And so, Paula, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you today, my dear? I'm fine. Thank you. I had a little bit of uh, auditory issues going on, but I think we're my phone kind of was wavering, but I'm I'm good. I'm good. And thank you for the invitation. I'm so happy to be on this call and part of this conversation. Paula, um, for those that are unfamiliar with homeschooling, can you kind of introduce us to your introduction to homeschooling? Certainly. Um, our introduction was, was a little bit different. Um, we began homeschooling in 1991. So unlike uh, Nicole, who's on the call, who really is, I think, the expert expert because she homeschooled right from the beginning. I don't think any of her children ever went to school. Um, I truthfully have to say we did not begin with the intention of homeschooling. So we had three children, three sons, uh, Damon and Charles are twins, and then Evan is the youngest. He's two years younger. And we had started in public school. At that time, we were living in Jacksonville, Florida. Charles and I were working for American Transact, AT&T, on the Divestiture Project. And we first had them in an experimental farm school, which was which was great. We liked the idea, the philosophy. But almost immediately, there were issues around race and presumptions about race. And I think like a lot of people, I thought that was a series of isolated incidents, right? So you go in and you have that conversation, and then the teacher or the administrator says, oh, thank you so much for bringing that to our attention. That's what we're all here to learn from one another. Okay. Um, then they went to regular public school. And again, same kinds of issues. We need to test them again because their test scores are so high. It must be a mistake. Um, and so that that was we went through the whole thing of maybe these were isolated incidents of that were clearly racially based. Then we moved back to Columbus. Um, the boys were enrolled at Columbus Academy, and I thought this is easy. I'm from Columbus. I, I went to Columbus School for Girls. I know this routine. I, I got this. Same thing same kinds of uh, series of issues. And so ultimately what happened was we were thrust into homeschooling because our children were expelled. Expelled so for the what, point, Paula? They were, well, there's the stated reason and then there's the subtext, right? Yes. So we were always self-employed. So, and Charles did not want the children on financial aid 
because he feels like whoever's paying calls the shots. So he was insistent that we not be on financial aid. And so, but because we were self-employed, money comes in in cycles, right? It's not every two weeks there's money deposited. Mm -hmm. So the arrangement that we had with the school was when we got paid, we would pay them in large chunks. So like five or $10,000 at a time. And that was fine. Until the summer that we decided to have a back-to-school picnic for the black students and their parents. And I did that because one of the things that I noticed when I went to Columbus School for Girls back in 1968, I was the only black kid in my class the whole four years that I was there. But what was particularly striking to me was how everybody seemed to know everybody else, like not just I know you, Betsy, but I know you, your your mom knows my mom, your dad knows my dad, uh, your aunties and uncles went to the same summer camp as my aunties and uncles. We all live in the same neighborhoods. We all go to the same summer camps. So there were all these different points of connection. And I thought that's part of what makes it difficult when black kids come into these spaces because they don't have those multi-dimensional touch points. And so I thought what would be great would be if we as black parents brought our children together so that we'd know each other, we'd know each other's kids, and not just when there's a problem. So I thought it was a great idea. We had it at a park. I sent out invitations. It was really a fun event. Um, The next week when school started, I got called into the headmaster's office and asked, did you have a party for black people? I was like, yeah, it was really great. And he's like, you you did not ask permission to do that. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. And I, I thought he was kidding. I said, well, so when you were at the country club this summer with a whole bunch of white people from school, did you, did you think about how that might look to people who weren't there? No, you didn't because you weren't thinking about us. And you know what you can extrapolate from that? I wasn't thinking about you either. This literally... <laughs> literally, you never crossed my mind. And he said, well, a lot of black people were offended. I said, you know, I'm sure there may be some people here who were going incognito. <laughs> and so, <laughs> maybe they didn't, maybe they thought nobody noticed that they were black. I, anyway, they said, you know what, your tuition is um, in arrears. You have until Friday to bring it um, in line, or your children are expelled. And then followed up and sent a note to me and called and said to me, if you send your children back, we will embarrass them. That's what the comptroller said. And so um, Charles and I were like, you know what? We did this with an experimental farm school. We did this at a public school. We're now in a private school. Perhaps we have been deluding ourselves into thinking that these were a series of isolated incidents. And I discuss all of that in my book, Morning by Morning, How We Homeschooled Our African-American Sons Through the Ivy League. And I did start with the beginning. Like, why did we do this? What actually happened? That was so I can't say, oh, we knew from the beginning. We had this plan. We did not know from the beginning. But we ultimately came to the conclusion that we could not afford school. Not financially, not spiritually, not psychologically, not culturally. We also realize we have better credentials than the people teaching anyway. Not to be a snot about it, but yeah, quantitatively speaking, we did. And neither of you, your husband or you, attended um, schools that had this policy. You all were not from, you didn't integrate schools. You went to integrated schools when you came up, correct? Yeah. Like I said, I was, I was, the, I was the black kid in my class. I wasn't the only black kid in my school, but I was the black kid in my class at Columbus School for Girls from 1968 to 1972. Um, my husband and I both, yes, in terms of the ability to be acclimated, both Charles and I come from families that have been in this country since the late 1700s. 
Both of us come from families that have been in lifelong marriages and pursuing post-secondary education as long as it's been legal for black people to do so. So my maternal great-grandmother was at Bluefield State Teachers College, class of 1898. Charles's paternal grandfather was at Morehouse, class of 1898. And his grandfather's mother was in the first class of Spelman in 1881. She was married and had a child while she was enslaved. And after emancipation, she enrolled in college. So, so, yeah, we know how to do this. So, Paula, as we talked about, there are parents right now who are considering homeschooling either for some of the reasons that you've talked about. Perhaps mm-hmm. during the last pandemic year, they saw their children may have thrived in an out-of-school schooling environment, unlike other children who didn't. Or there are parents who are concerned about whatever the policy might be for this upcoming year about the pandemic. So once you and your family did decide to homeschool, can you share with us your experiences and your tips for people who are trying to make that decision? Certainly. Um, I think one of the most important things that I want to point out, and this may have been because our children had been in school, so the transition was an issue, that um, that's different for a child maybe who's been homeschooled consistently. Our children did not like being homeschooled. In fact, I would go so far as to say our children hated being homeschooled, and they told us all the time. And so that was a very real, that was a very real issue. Um, my husband and I were both very clear with them, however, about what the rationale was. We had a mission statement. We had a vision for this process. And we essentially engaged them respectfully enough to say, we hear you that this is not something that you like or that you would choose to do. But we are responsible for these developmental years. So we're asking you to trust us that we are making decisions in your best interest. But yes, our children definitely told us, you you and dad have racial issues. You're stuck in a time warp. Mm-hmm. And we're like, that, that's okay. Keep having them birthdays. This will become mm-hmm. clear to you. Um, so we were consistent. We were consistent. And I think the thing that I would say is this is, to say that these are unprecedented times is not an exaggeration. I think it's really important to speak to our children and not give instructions exclusively, but to really engage them in the critical thinking process of this is why we are doing this. And so when the question comes up about what about socialization and pointing out to children and to other adults, socialization begins at conception and it continues until death. And Thinking that school is the only place that people are socialized is factually incorrect. And more importantly, thinking that the socialization that happens at school is safe and healthy is naive. Because we can look at the prison population and see the vast majority of people incarcerated have gone through traditional educational sources, be it public, private, or parochial. So the socialization is there. But the socialization process in institutionalized education is tied to the school-to-prison pipeline. Well, that's so Socialization process. Well, that's what it's for. I mean, I'm a process person. If we compared education to manufacturing, if we were manufacturing cars and all the blue cars came off the assembly line with only three wheels, we wouldn't say, the blue cars are not interested in being functional. We also wouldn't say that the people on the assembly line are intentionally involved in a conspiracy to destroy blue cars. We would know there is a design flaw here, and the design flaw isn't housed in the car or the assembly line worker. It's a design flaw, and we need to look at this and re-engineer this. So we just decided this system is not working. And statistically, African-American male children are at the bottom of every performance measurement standard except athletics. That cannot be coincidental. 
that's one of the, the best explanations I've heard of mm-hmm. systemic racism or systemic anything when the system is designed intentionally or unintentionally in such a way that some cars are just going to come off the assembly line in better shape than others. Right. So, Paul, right. the car doesn't design itself. Mm-hmm. So, on a day-to-day basis, then, how did you handle homeschooling, especially in an era when technology wasn't as prevalent as it is today? Well, and, and to some extent, that probably was an advantage for us. Um, my husband was the person who really kind of oversaw the, the, the structure of this, and it was very serious. Part of what our children didn't like, for example, was school went all year. There's no summer breaks. There were no cable. There was no cable TV and no video games. Um, his rationale was, as he explained to them, "You are children now, but one day you are going to be grown men, and grown men don't have three months off every year to sit around and play video games. Not not grown men who are contributing." members of community. You are not being raised to be a consumer. You're a contributor. And so that was that was a big part of it. So the fact that you have all year gives you the flexibility to work through the academic and intellectual work. And part of our philosophy was that if a child is validated and nurtured holistically, spiritually, physically, and intellectually, academic achievement and excellence is going to happen as a foregone conclusion because it's in the nature of humans to seek knowledge. That's why you'll, when you see a three-year-old, they're always asking questions. I, what I, we should be excuse asking me. is what makes children stop? We have to take a really quick break in this very stimulating conversation. Um, and we will be right back with Paula Penabrit on the window. Experts, Paula, are you back with us? Nicole is here. Yes. Oh, Nicole, hi. How are you? Welcome to the window. Hi, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Can you talk to us about what it is you do as it relates to homeschooling? Okay. I think I'm back. Yes, we can. Yes. Okay, all right. So um, I guess the condensed version of that is, and I think it is a critical question, I think a lot of times we look at the issue of the cost of something versus the price and the value. So shifting what our priorities were. So, again, we didn't eat out. We didn't have, we had one car for over 10 years. Um, as a family, we had one car, and frequently they were hoopties. Our kids would be like, why are we, <laughs> why does a dad get a real car? All of our disposable income went into building the business and supporting our children's educational experiences. So for, and we knew that we couldn't do all the teaching ourselves. We hired African and African-American graduate students at Ohio State to teach biology, French, and mathematics. And of the nine tutors that we hired over the years, seven of them were men. Our children were surrounded by adult versions of themselves. Um, And, you know, I don't think people think about, what is that car note? And how many car notes are you paying? And what is that cell phone bill? And how many cell phones do you have and do you need? And how often do you get your nails done, and your hair done? And how much do you spend when you go to the movies and you get popcorn and everything? People aren't even going at matinees, going at night. So that when when it was time for our children to do things like space camp, oceanography camp, engineering camp, and people would say to me, it must be nice. I ain't got it like that. I'm like, you are driving a car that you pay $600 a month for. You do got it like that. You don't want to spend it like that, but you got it like that. You got it like that. We now, it's not like I think cable TV is the portal through which Satan enters the universe. I don't think that. I just felt, and my husband felt, that cable television is a means by which our children are 
adversely influenced. We can't just talk about systems of white supremacy. We can't just talk about issues of patriarchy and not talk about how much of that patriarchal garbage and institutionalized racism and systems of white supremacy we are bringing into our homes and that our children are ingesting. We're watching it on television. And that then, not having cable, makes the issue of two hours of quiet reading every day, that's a lot easier to do because there's nothing to watch on TV. There's nothing to watch on TV. And Paula, for, for listeners who might be cringing, thinking, gee, my kids would never go along with this, I will remind anyone just tuning in that we started out with the conversation with you talking about the impact on your sons who didn't like homeschooling. We'll talk in just a moment about where they are now because you mentioned that term Ivy League. But we'd like to bring into the conversation an in-studio guest who's on the other side of that homeschooling table. He was homeschooled for much of his academic career and also had some experiences within a school environment. He seems to be doing okay with his life now. So we'd like to hear from him about, from his perspective, the pros and cons and tips that he would give people considering homeschooling with a reminder that his his family might be listening, so he doesn't want to say anything that would keep him from being invited to the next cookout. But Caleb Caldwell, welcome to the window. Yes, yes. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. So tell us first about your background. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was homeschooled growing up. Um, there were four of us, so my twin brother and two younger sisters. We were homeschooled. Our mom taught us at home. Uh, it's a biracial family. My mom is white. My dad is black. And uh, we were homeschooled. Me and my brother were homeschooled up until high school. And then we went to a public school after that. My sister, the oldest of the two youngest sisters, she was homeschooled through her first year of high school and then went to a public school after that. And then my youngest sister, she jumped the gun super early and went into public school and elementary school. So she was the one who was in public school for the longest. But uh, we did that. And then uh, my brother and I went on to go to college and graduated and my sister as well. And my other sister, oh my goodness, we're all in college and graduated now but um, yeah and I'm out in the field I was an engineer for a while and am now a elementary school teacher good so you are a male elementary school teacher I am I am okay great how old were you when homeschooling began for you mm-hmm. it was from the beginning so we were homeschooled from birth until yeah high school so and was your mom years. the teacher my mother was a teacher yeah oh, for okay. the majority of that time near the end around middle school we joined a homeschool cohort in columbus and it was just another bunch of homeschool families and folks that could kind of share the load a little bit with the teaching or the curriculum and that was get to do more you know, shakespeare history classes those kind of things with other students so and so was your mom trained and educated as a teacher or did she put on her super mom cape she a little bit of both i would say she did go to school for got an education degree uh but her kind of the way that our you know not necessarily by choice but just by uh the jobs and the the work that my parents did uh my mom decided to homeschool us and kind of had to take on a little bit more than maybe she had gone to gotten training for so and do you know why your family made the decision to homeschool mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that a lot of it was uh, monetary reasons and just a lot of good schools are very expensive. And my uh, parents both had a challenging time in public schools and kind of knew the, uh, yeah, the, the challenges of the education system as it is and the way that it does chew up a lot of children and spit them out into a world that they're not really prepared for. And so uh, they wanted to create an environment that was conducive to learning and helpful for all of us and just preparing us for the world as it is. I think Paula made some excellent points about the experiences that black children especially have in the public school system. And so I think my parents were cognitive of that and wanted to uh, create an environment that was conducive for all of us to grow and learn uh, and have, be prepared for the world. What about the transition when you went to public schools after being at home? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there definitely was that first year was probably the the hardest year in terms of just transitioning. And most of the challenges came from just being around so many peers uh, that, you know, we just had not had necessarily that experience before. Now, we were 
very socialized before then. There was lots of uh, folks in and out of our house. Our parents are very involved in the community, and so we were, I would say, very sociable children. Uh, but with the transition into high school, all of a sudden there's now a bunch of folks that, you know, getting to learn uh, new uh, slogans and jargon and what all the kids are saying and all that stuff. And so I think there was a little bit uh, of a transition period and just kind of learning how to interact with, uh, again, other peers and other folks that um, we maybe had not had as much experience interacting with before. But it was a quick transition. I don't think it was anything challenging. A lot of the folks that we talked to were very open and willing to engage with us. And if anything, we're excited to learn about what homeschooling was like uh, after many of them had been public schooled for their entire lives. So You went to Columbus Public? Uh, it was a Columbus Public School. It was a metro early college high school okay so uh, it was still kind of in a little niche there yes yeah, it was a little smaller environment my graduating class is around 70 or 80 folks so but it was mixed race yes. and, and mixed income mm-hmm, and all those mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i think it's interesting that your parents only saw the choices at the in the beginning as homeschooling or private school public school wasn't even on the table yeah and that's because I think, I mean, again, Paula mentioned a lot of great things, great points about the public school system and the way that it does treat black boys, especially and black children. And I think there are a lot of challenges with that. Um, Additionally, just in middle school and elementary school, kids can just be mean to each other and just really, really awful. And so I think my mom especially had experienced a lot of that in elementary school and middle school. And so she wanted to, I think, kind of protect us from that in some ways. And so I think it was a lot of the, the influences for her. So when you and your siblings were being homeschooled, how did that work on a Mm day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I will say our experience was uh, maybe not as structured uh, as Paula's, uh, she described her uh, homeschooling environment was, but we would have, uh, my mom would gather curriculum from various sources and we'd have things to do every day. And uh, at the beginning, uh, especially when we were younger, there was a, a very specific start time and a very specific end time during the day. But as we got older, it just kind of became, these are the things you have to get done today finish it at your own leisure, try to get started before lunch. And so it was a lot of flexibility, a lot of uh, just letting us learn at our own pace and get to explore different things. And so on a day-to-day basis, we'd be doing anything from just uh, workbooks and just random assignments, or we'd be going on field trips and getting to go out into different museums or science exhibits, different things, getting to actually get a hands-on experience or experiential learning uh, as we were going through. And so, again, very, very flexible and very open um, with our learning model. So you could go to mom and say, hey, look, this isn't a good day for me. I'm going to have to skip today. (laughs) How did you manage that? I mean, how did your mom manage that, that, that discipline? I think there definitely there still was we had to get work done. We still had to get work done on a daily basis. And there were problems if we did not get work done uh, on a daily basis. And so there'd be uh, more things that we'd have to do. Uh, But I think for the most part, again, the work that we had to do was tailored to each of us. And so especially I think my sister gave a great example when I was talking to her about this, just kind of preparing for this talk uh, with reading especially. So there's a lot of examples from the classic literature that you'd have to read in all sorts of different educational environments. And so my sister was having a hard time just reading some of those, just the old English speak and all of that. And while there is merit, I think, to going through and trying to understand some of that, it was just a challenge for her. And the goal at the end of the day was just to get my sister engaged in reading and learning how to read and being a part of that. So my mom just found different kinds of books. And so my sister especially loved the Harry Potter books. And so using that as part of the homeschooling curriculum, it's okay, let's write an essay about Harry Potter and do that for today. And so I think having that flexibility helped get all of us invested and engaged in the uh, just the work on a day-to-day basis. So often we didn't have, I guess, the problem of not doing work and not completing work. And so uh, we were, I think, pretty engaged. At least I don't remember a time where I was super, super disengaged from the work and I wanted to get stuff done because it was in- engaging for me. So here's the million-dollar question. Mm-hmm. Paula was very open with us in sharing that her sons did not like homeschooling. How did you feel about homeschooling? This is. We're going to take a break. Meditate on that. I 
<laughs> we will talk more about your impressions of homeschooling when we come back to the window. Okay, um, we have been excused from the break, and so we are back. And um, Joanna, you were just saying something yes. about. All right, I'm looking him right in the eye for those of us who can't see us. How did you feel about your homeschooling experience? How did you feel mm-hmm. then going through it and now mm-hmm. looking back on it? Two different yes. questions. Yes. So I think at the time it was something I enjoyed a lot. It, uh, I did not have another uh, experience to compare it to, and so it was something that I, I really did enjoy. I think uh, there were a lot, many parts of it that my siblings as well enjoyed. Uh, I think just kind of gauging, did a quick poll, just asking them earlier, just seeing if they were uh, enjoyed it, and I think they did, uh, based, based off what they were saying. And so I think, again, at the time, getting to have that experiential learning, getting to have the environment where my mom was able to pull things that we were interested in and incorporate that into the learning was huge. And I think especially in public schools, that's something that's very challenging to do. And I think there are great teachers out there. There are amazing teachers out there, teachers that I work with that try to do that, and they try to incorporate as much as they can the student's interest to make learning more engaging, but it's still a challenge and it doesn't happen perfectly. It doesn't happen exceptionally in many places. And so I think that is an advantage of homeschooling. That's something that we were all, uh, me and my siblings were able to benefit from uh, incredibly. And so I think looking back on it uh, now as uh, many years removed from the homeschooling experience, I think that there is some things that, I think being homeschooled or having the opportunity to homeschool is a huge privilege. And I don't think that many folks necessarily have the time or the space or the availability even to allow you know, a parent to stay home with the kids to teach and not necessarily just be there, but to teach the children and or just to have the resources even to find someone else to go and teach these children or whatever it is, their children. And so I think there is the thought that it is a, a huge privilege for families, since I think that's something that I did not think about a lot growing up, that that was an incredible opportunity that uh, me and my siblings were able to experience. I do have a question. <laughs> this is coming from a mother. What about sibling rivalry during this whole <laughs> process? My, my children were five years apart, and regardless of different gender, different age there was still this competition within the house like you let so-and-so do this but you didn't let me do it and you made her get up and i had all of that how did how did that it was decided it was definitely there uh i think me and my brother were the oldest but uh, my sister is oldest of the younger two sisters she's two years behind us and then my youngest sister is Oh boy, five, five years behind. I always get the numbers mixed up, but uh, there definitely were a lot of just little bickering, little arguments. I mean, you are, I mean, the first 12, 13 years of our schooling experience was just with each other in the house together. And so I think there's some things that are, there were challenges with that. Again, there's plenty of arguing and fights that would happen. And it's more just like the regular sibling rivalries that would spill over then into the educational world because it's all in one house. But I do think the advantages of that is that we did learn how to work through it. I think my parents are both huge advocates of learning how to communicate and communicating clearly and concisely and working through a problem and not just getting frustrated and bottling it up or taking it out on someone else. And so I think that an advantage that we all had of growing up with each other, growing up learning together was that we all learned how to communicate, learned how to get through a lot of those problems. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, something that I look back on again as a, a benefit to going through that experience is that we all have become, I think, very great communicators and good uh, dealing with various types of conflict and even just have great relationships with each other and relationships that I think are not necessarily as common with uh, other siblings especially later in life so and here's another difference i have to put on the table both of you paula and you had a mother and a father 24 mm-hmm. 7 many of our children and probably even where you work have one parent yeah. to juggle everything would you say that homeschooling is an option for a one parent household 
I would hope that it could be an option. I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's an incredible privilege to even have the opportunity to homeschool. And I don't think that it's something that many folks have access to. Because, as you said, if you're a single parent, then you, you got to work. You got to put food on the table. You got to pay them bills. You can't stay home and, and teach. Now, I mean, there might be some folks that are able to, you know, wheel and deal or do whatever they got to do on the side to, to make something happen. But I think that it is still... It's an incredible opportunity, and I think that we were very privileged to be able to do that. And um, I think that given the right environment, given the right resources, there might be folks who are able to make it work. But it is, it is, and would be, I think, an incredible challenge as a single parent to homeschool. What, what comes to my mind is that during the pandemic, I heard, and, and there were pros and cons to what we went through during the pandemic. We did learn to be a lot more resilient. And I heard about families that would co-op, if you will, they would get together. And in some families, they just could not stay at home and care for their children, even in an emergency situation like the pandemic. So other families kicked in, either relatives, the village, or families actually got together and said, let's pool our resources, including perhaps someone opening up their home if they could be there all day, or if not, let's find some space where we can all pool our resources and afford. And they got their kids together in small groups to homeschool them, if you will. Paul, are you still there? No. And we should take a moment and thank our substitute engineer. Our regular engineer, unfortunately, had a, a family death and had mm -hmm. to leave town. So we thank, thank you Bishop. very much yes. for, for putting up with us here today. Yes. Let me ask you, Caleb, we've heard advice from a parent's perspective for our audience members who might be thinking about whether homeschooling is a good option for their family and their parents. What advice would you give to prospective students? Again, all his sons did not like homeschooling. You had a more positive experience. But if you were to give advice to a student whose parents came to them and said, we're thinking about it or we're going to do it, what advice would you give them? Hmm. I think that the homeschooling experience, I mean, I guess, again, it, it depends on the environment. It depends on uh what the the curriculum, what the the structure is like, but I do think that the homeschooling environment, if done correctly, can provide a incredible learning opportunity, a way to engage with material that is just not possible in the same ways in a public school. And I think that uh, it is very very possible to enjoy a lot of schooling and enjoy a lot of the schoolwork uh, done in a homeschooling environment and whether that is just with you and your siblings or whether that's with a cohort whether that's with you know different types of learning models i think that it is very possible to enjoy schoolwork and i think that uh, at least for again my experience was very much so that we had uh, opportunities to um, just the way that my mom created it was that we were able to engage with things that we cared about and that we enjoyed and so that made learning exciting and so I think that that is an incredible advantage of homeschooling in addition to the fact that just you get to have a lot more flexibility with uh, just where the schooling takes place and again going on field trips getting to explore things getting experiential learning is huge and something that not necessarily you don't get those opportunities as much in a public school. And so I'm feeling as though you're in a way calling for even students to reimagine what this thing called education mm -hmm. is. Yeah, I would say students and even parents, I think that there's a lot of, of new ways we could consider, yeah, just how education is done. I think that's one thing, especially with the pandemic, that is probably came to a lot of folks' attention and minds is just the way that children are learning. And, you know, math isn't the same as it was when, you know, I was learning it and all that stuff. I think that education is changing and shifting, but I think that there's ways that we can do it better. There's ways that we could do it differently. And I think that homeschooling, at least for me uh, and my siblings, offered a very different way of uh, learning that was not the same as the public schools that were in our uh, immediate area. And so again, it's, it is an incredible privilege. It is an incredible privilege to be able to homeschool. And I think that it is not something that is necessarily available for every single family. Uh, but if it is something that you're considering, if it's something that you are wanting to do or incorporate into your education for your children, I think that it's something that can be really 
strong and really powerful for your children uh, and creating, again, a, a very engaging learning environment that keeps them excited and uh, wanting to come back to uh, learning every day. And perhaps even at a minimum, parents who make the decision that homeschooling is not for them can at least understand more the value of them being engaged in their students' education to a greater extent than they've been in the past, that learning happens outside of the classroom. And you are a teacher now in the classroom. We need to have you back and talk about black male teachers, perhaps. I'd love to be back for that, yes. Yes, (laughs) yes. My understanding is that we do have on the line now as we prepare to wrap up our show today that we do have Nicole are you with us I am thank you so I much am. for being I, here on the yeah. window I um was thinking when Caleb was talking I'm trying to figure out if I have a, a echo I'm not sure but I was thinking about when okay great when Caleb was speaking um and I just enjoyed hearing about his experience I was reflecting on I have I have three children of my own um, a 15, a 17 year old. So they are rising sophomore, rising senior. And then I have a graduate who is a sophomore in college and thinking about their experiences and how they reflect on homeschooling too. Um, they all also recognize it as a tremendous privilege that they know everyone doesn't have. Um, my kids have never been to school. And so they, um, this is all they knew for themselves, but because we are very social, very active in our church, and um, they play sports and that kind of thing, they know that not everyone has this privilege. Um, but the funny thing is none of them want to homeschool their own kids. <laughs> so I think they look back on it as being great for their life, uh, but they seem to feel like it would be, it's a lot of work. I think, I think that's what they see it as. It's been a lot of work for me. So from the parent standpoint, they wouldn't want to necessarily, um, do so much of that work, I guess, and put it together for their kids. Although my daughter did say to me yesterday, uh, that she's very grateful for how well homeschool works because having been in college and meeting students who didn't, who weren't homeschooled and are very close-minded about some things or have been, um, I don't know, had their education uh, guided for them in some so many ways that they didn't have enough choices or able to explore, you know, their own thoughts or things similar to what Caleb was referring to. They, um, she feels bad for some of them. So doesn't, doesn't want that same limitation for her own kids. Nicole, as we wrap up today, if my understanding is correct, you have gone beyond just homeschooling your own children and you provide resources to others who are considering homeschooling as an option. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So locally here in Maryland, um, and I know I've learned it's pretty uh, unique to Maryland, we um, have a model here that's called the tutorial model, which basically is a drop-off setting where parents will drop their kids off. Um, our program is two days a week. There are other programs that are just one day, and then there are even some that are three days a week. And it may be uh, like our program is 8.30 to 12.45, and it's just the four core classes. And it's a la carte, so maybe English is not your strong suit or math is not your strong suit, for example, or you need the morning off to work. And so they pay tuition to parent, to, to the tutors, um, they pay a registration to the program, and they're able to drop their kids off and pick them back up. And what we provide is a classroom setting two days a week where we structure some of the learning for the families. So they are in class two days a week. The tutors introduce the material. We, you know, maybe teach the hard topics, and then they work with their kids Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at home. So they maintain the integrity of homeschooling. They are still very much in the driver's seat. Uh, like I said, the classes are a la carte. It's entirely um, uh, elective or optional. That there's nobody says they have to do it in Maryland, but that's the, it. It provides some structure for families who are not quite sure how to do it on their own, or who also need some social uh, settings for both the parents 
and for the students that is a little different than what we call enrichment co-ops, where families may get together for just field trips or maybe just an art class or uh, a literature circle or something like that. So our program is a little bit more structured. And it's there where you and Caleb had a conversation about um, single parents. It's there where the single parents find some support because at least they get these two days a week where if they're working, their kids are with us. And then there are other programs that um, are um, provide transportation or there's some places they go, their learning centers, maybe the Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or then they do the small group pod thing that you mentioned where another family will pick up their child or they spend time. So in, in I live in PG County, Maryland, which is one of the most affluent areas in the country, but we have one of the largest homeschool communities in the country as well, which I think says something about our school district. And those um, organizations that do the teaching that you're referencing, are those for-profit? Businesses? No, ours is actually a 501c3. Um, there is, it's almost impossible to turn a profit with this particular model. One of the things we do is the parents pay the tutors themselves, so it's a tuition to the tutor. The only um, funds that the tutorial makes is basically a registration fee. And so because we rent churches, mostly they're uh, held in churches. Our our group is hosted in a church. So we pay the church a facility fee. We have to provide like cleaning, our own cleaning supplies and, you know, uh, dry erase markers and curriculum for the tutors and that kind of thing. So there is no uh, profit to be had at all. But we are, again, our 501c3. So we kind of try to clear out our books every year at the end. Okay. Um, provide scholarships and that kind of thing for families as well. We only have two minutes left, and I need to um, remind people that um, Paula Pinnabert has an organization on homeschooling called www.telosinc.org, and her book is Morning by Morning, How We Homeschool Our African-American Sons to the Ivy League, it's at Random House at 2003. It's Morning by Morning, How We Homeschooled Our African-American Sons to the Ivy League, and it's at Random House. Paula Penn Nabret, Caleb Caldwell, Nicole Kennedy Green, thank you so much. So much good information for parents who are considering how to fulfill their responsibility. Educating your child is your responsibility. Whether you choose to do it in a public school setting, a private school setting, or take the plunge and do it at home, either on your own or with the abundance of resources that are there. So much good information. Thank you for being here with us today. Mask up. Take your vax. Join us next week on The Window. Goodbye, everyone. See you next week.